welcome to the To Your Bible, a custom designed To Your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. And I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And we are finishing up numbers today and heading Woo-hoo. into the book of Deuteronomy. And that is exciting. And yeah. uh, we're in the last book of the Torah, the first five books, uh, though Deuteronomy will take a little bit to get through, but um, uh, I'm excited. And, uh, and then we'll continue through the book of Acts as we go as well today. And so we pick up kind of once again, sort of mid-story, not at a natural transition point, but that's how these weeks break up. And Mm -hmm. we hear about these cities. So if you're a Levite, you know you're not going to have land, but you still need a place to live. You can't be a homeless priest. And so uh, they're given these towns all throughout sort of Israel and distributed uh, throughout the land. So they have a place to live. It's cool that they're placed all over Israel because then they can be an example of what it looks like to follow and obey God. Yeah, yeah, these little pictures of priesthood uh, all over the place. And Mm -hmm. so, um, but they're also given six cities and uh, these cities are called cities of refuge. And um, once again, uh, dealing with like the intentional versus the non-intentional, which we dealt with in in Leviticus, it's like, look, if, if you intentionally murder someone, Death, death is your punishment. That is by law the punishment you should receive. But if it's like manslaughter, if if there was an unintentional uh, death in some ways, that there's um, something else that you could do. And 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 although the family ha- are in their rights to respond and kill you for your manslaughter, uh, there are these cities, these six cities that you can go to, and you would be protected in in the process. So there's sort of provision made for this unintentional. Um, sin, this unintentional death that you would have committed. Um, Yeah. And so they go there and they wait there basically until some form of a trial to determine what the punishment or consequence is or how intentional or unintentional it was. And if this person is, is found guilty in some way or another, the manslayer cannot return home until the high priest dies. Yeah. The sort of, um, their, their sin is not dealt with until the death of the priest and, 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 yeah, and so the the priest now becomes the death that they ultimately deserve, and so mm-hmm. there's such a picture of Jesus in this whole city of refuge conversation. Yeah, and I was thinking about how I kind of like we start to see patterns of this. You know, Israel doesn't move into the promised land until Moses dies. We have this situation, then of course we see, like you mentioned, Christ's death is that ultimate atoning sacrifice for us. Yeah, yeah, death is a gateway to a lot of things, mm-hmm. and then. Um, we we get this uh, kind of a, almost like a follow up conversation to this to the previous conversation around like uh, what happens with daughters and land and and things like that and and a, a rightful practical conversation comes up of okay like um, th- these women who have land but no husband or, or brothers or anything if they ma- if they marry a, a non a person outside their tribe, well, that makes this land that much more confusing. And so um, it's going to redistribute the land. And we, we don't want that. And so right. um, that they they agree that they should probably marry within their own tribe. Now, remember, there's thousands and thousands of people. So these women have some options. But um, uh, yeah, they have to stay within their own tribes, yeah. which once again, just makes practical sense for the keeping of the tribes and land. Right. And then that final summary, God is saying, Moses, here's all the things you need to do and tell everybody in Israel what they are. Yep. And so final thoughts, what, what did your, what was your experience, Sarah, of the book of Numbers reading it through this time? So Numbers, like we mentioned at the beginning, it's not what I expected because the name of the book is different than the content. It was more than just reading a whole bunch of numbers, not nearly as boring as it sounds. Uh, 
But I, I think seeing 40 years of wandering in the desert is a lot to cover in one book. So we're only getting stories here and there of some really significant things that happened. And a lot of them seem to point to the weakness and brokenness of Israel, but also the faithfulness of God who continued no matter what to keep his covenant with Israel because of his promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So I think personally, I was I was cautioned to continue to consider what obedience to God looks like, not what I want obedience to be, but what true obedience is. And I want to think on the connections that these Christ connections that we see in these different stories, the ways that I wouldn't have made them if Jesus hadn't. So work on that. And then just make sure I'm continuing to be cautious or I guess instead of cautious, the word would be fearing God in that I don't neglect the pursuit of holiness just because I have God's favor. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, um, preconceived notions of books like Numbers. It's so interesting because when I think of Joshua, I think of wars and battles. And when I think of Numbers, I think of censuses and stuff like right. that. But then you get to Numbers and the censuses are really not that common uh, or the the, the counting. Um, and then you get to Joshua and like half the book is not even battles. It's just laying out all the parameters of the tribes, which right. is so boring. And so um, some of my preconceived notions between Numbers and Joshua is, and, and, and there's other books like that where it's like, all right, maybe this book is really not as, as, as rough as I remember or imagined or um, since the last time I've read through it. And so, um, yeah, there's there's a lot more narrative, a lot more action than than, than I, I remembered the last time I read through mm-hmm. numbers. And so um, in a lot of ways to me, this book felt like, all right, if Sinai is like this marriage picture between Israel and its God, um, the book of numbers is sort of like the honeymoon phase and, and the first year of marriage as they sort of work out the, the how, how do we live together. And, and, and a lot of that's really on Israel's side of like trying to figure out what, what Yahweh desires as the, as the husband, but, um, and, and them learning, uh, them learning like, all right, this is stuff that upsets him. And this is stuff that, um, of blesses us and blesses him and, and all those sort of pictures and walking through the sort of discovery. I, I think sometimes we read the word test and we hear, um, uh, pass fail, but, um, there's a way that I think God would use tests in a way that some teachers use tests where it's like, okay, I, I'm doing this to help grow you and refine you. Um, I'm, I'm giving you these trials and, and these, 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 this process so that you learn lessons. And so um, we, we get those and, and they're learning. They're, this is still newish to them, this whole Yahweh thing. Now imagine they, they left Egypt. They only had uh, a little bit of time in the desert before they end up at Sinai. They get the whole Levitical thing uh, for a year and, and now they're heading off. And so this is a very much a discover who Yahweh is process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so uh, we are now transitioning to the book of Deuteronomy, the last of the five books uh, in the Torah. Uh, And so uh, we're going to get similar stories, similar characters, some similar axioms. There's definitely some differences too. Um, And we're going to cover some of the history in the past of Israel, um, as well as a few flash forwards in some ways of of where they're headed and what's going to be sort of on the periphery. And so... um, Yeah, but it's basically Moses's final speeches. So we see three sermons and two prophetic poems in here, but it's everything he wants to get said before they go. It's him, yeah, getting ready to hand off the baton or pass the mantle of leadership to Joshua. Yeah, and there's a lot of complexities around... 
there's Moses is suddenly third person. Uh, there's some language and timing and stuff like that that you might pop up. Uh, keep a lookout for those. I always find those interesting to help date exactly when Deuteronomy may have been written, things like that. But uh, you might notice them as you read, as I did. And so uh, it's a pretty straightforward breakdown of the book. They cover from Sinai to Moab. Uh, they recall their time at Sinai. Uh, they get this longer kind of code that has some overlap to Levitical and uh, the end of Exodus as well. Um, and then sort of the closure of the book and the passing of the baton. So um, yeah. Uh, and the Jordans mentioned 19 times throughout the book. There's definitely this like refrain of, Hey, like we're on the last barrier to enter mm-hmm. the promised land. So they're stopping and they're remembering. It's like Moses's last pep talk to his people to go, okay, let's remember where we've been. Let's remember what we've learned. And, 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 and before we head into the land, um, and so uh, there's a lot of allusions back. There's allusions. Uh, the New Testament alludes to this book a ton. Jesus straight up quotes it a good number of times. And so um, it's an important book. And there'll be verses where you're like, oh, like, I know that one. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. cool. Well, let's dive in. Um, and so uh, they are... Um, we're starting with the sort of uh, Sinai to uh, Moab sort of stories right from uh, the beginning here, um, the, the sort of uh, tension of the journey between where they need to go and being redeemed by God, which um, even the Old Testament or even the New Testament writers will, will sort of connect some of our experience of where we're at right now to that idea that we're sort of this in between. We're not quite there yet, uh, but we're certainly redeemed. And so um, that, that's where we're going to be. And it's like, hey, let's go. Okay, but now 34 chapters of information. And yeah. so uh, we, we recap a lot. Leaders are appointed over Israel um, and they refuse to enter the land. All this stuff that, that we've covered uh, in... Um, in numbers. And so. Yeah. So the things to remember as you read this is, first of all, Moses continues to reference back to God's promise to Abram. And we're even seeing the fulfillment of this and just little side comments here. It's, it's ingrained in them, this understanding of God's promise to multiply them and bless them and then to give them this land. And so they're fulfilling it. Uh, but I just like the way that Moses weaves it into his conversations and its statements. Like, of course, this is going to happen. This is this is what it is. And also remember that as Israel is hearing these words, it's been 40 years for them. It hasn't been, you know, three or four weeks like it has been for us in reading the story. Yeah. And, and to me, it's a little bit um, humorous hearing how Moses retells some of these stories uh, because uh, there's just some ways he sort of accuses or uh, plays a little bit of passive aggressive to me of, of how he responds uh, to how situations went down. <clears throat> and so, but it's his perspective in this. And so that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they continue uh, to head through the wilderness. Uh, they leave the descendants of Esau alone. They, um, they uh, go ahead and fight the Amorites though. Um, and, and eventually they get to this King Sihon, um, and uh, he's he's the one who doesn't show them sort of hospitality. All these other groups go, mm-hmm. sure, you can walk through our land. Just don't take anything. Don't touch. Don't attack us. Um, then the Sihon comes along and goes, nope, you are not allowed to come through. And um, they get destroyed because of it. Now, I, there's ways that it feels like genocide. I, I will deal with that larger conversation, I think, when we get to Joshua um, of what ancient cities were like how ancient battles were fought what sort of civilians would have been in that in in the walls and outside the walls but that's that's another conversation for another day and so um 
they win a battle and then they fight King Og. Uh, mm-hmm. Deuteronomy has this a little bit of a motif around like giants. Uh, so if you're reading through, maybe you notice like, why do we know the details of King Og's bed? Like who cares <laughs> how big this guy's bed is? Um, but uh, it's meant to be described as King Og was like a giant. He had this giant bed. Um, and we'll see other language in this book where it's like giants. And so if you remember the spies that went to the promised land reported back that like, it's almost like there was giants in the land. And now we're seeing in Deuteronomy, Israel defeat these giant like characters uh, through, through God's working through them. And so when they're going to get to the promised land, they've heard stories now of how they've defeated giants. And so these giants in the promised land won't, won't be as scary anymore yeah and there's these constant refrains don't fear them it's the lord your god who fights for you reminders that yeah you're the ones who are going to war there is an act of obedience here but god is the one who's going to win the battle god's going to defend you and god's going to deliver you and that's important you know they need to learn it in these little cities here and there before they cross the jordan and start to do it on a bigger level oh yeah it's like if they could be faithful to the small, then God can give them the big, which is certainly a New Testament concept. And so, um, yeah. And so uh, they don't, um, Moses sort of uh, has this begging once again, God, can I enter the promised land? And God says no. And Moses sort of gets all uh, blamey with the Israelites at that moment, which I think is interesting too. He's sort of like, because of your disobedience, I'm like, no, Moses, it feels like it was because of yours. Um, but that's not surprising. We, we always blame other people for sins and don't always own up our moments. Moses, as great as Moses is, and as humble as Moses is, Moses is still very imperfect. Yeah. I think it's kind of, it's a bummer initially when you're like, Moses doesn't even get to go. Like, gosh, God, that's kind of given him a raw deal. He screwed up once. And then he doesn't get to do this thing he's been working for and sacrificed for and suffered for for so long. But then if we jump to the New Testament and the transfiguration, we see him in the promised land with Jesus. And so I just, I mean, that's a much bigger thing. I'm not going to flesh it out right now, but he does get to go to the promised land. He does get to see the promised land and he does it with the Christ. That's what, that's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, but Moses reminds them of their struggles. He's like, Hey, remember that? Remember those Moabite women and Baal? Let's not do that again. And luckily God was gracious with us and God forgives us and is still with us, but let's not do that again. If we obey, the nations are going to see the wisdom of God. There's sort of this missional teaching, even in this, this chapter four area. Um, but um, it's definitely, uh, he's going to remind them of their past sins, still remind them that, that God is, is, is there. He's, he's, he's with them. Um, and he's been gracious in the midst of their trials, but he's sort of like, okay, let, but let's remember not to do again the mistakes we made before. Yeah, he gives some great commands in this section. This is like a section of Deuteronomy that I just really, really enjoy listening to or reading because it just feels like these beautiful truths that kind of get to wash over you. It feels kind of poetic in a way. But the commands, like don't add or take away from the word. Hold fast to the Lord. Wisdom and understanding come from following God's commands. Keep your soul diligently and don't forget to tell your kids. And I think depending on where we are in our faith, some of us have a long history of seeing God's faithfulness and others of us have only seen it for a short time, even though it's been there all along. And just like Moses reminded Israel of God's faithfulness, we are to recall that in our own lives as well so that we can continue walking in obedience. Oftentimes, obedience becomes more and more difficult as we're led to do more and more difficult things. But Moses' instructions here are good reminders for us as well. Don't get lazy in your faith. Know God's word, trust him, and be proactive not to forget him. Make sure to tell your kids and others in the faith and pass it on to the next generation. These are good words for us too. Yep. Yeah. That that whole pass it on to the next generation will be uh, 
we'll hit on that multiple times mm-hmm. uh, as we go. And so uh, he reminds them of their idolatry, um, the the fact that hey, remember on the mountain, like you didn't see God's form, but then you made images to worship. Like don't don't do that again. Um, and so um, yeah, and, and we get a little bit of a foreshadowing uh, of the exile. So there's some like hey, one day, like if you don't follow these commands, you're going to be kicked out of this land. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, there's sort of that that future telling uh, of of what's what's at stake. In their disobedience. Yeah, and there's this redemptive piece of it too. God says, listen, if you disobey me, if you do this, I'm going to punish you for a time, but I'm never going to forget my covenant with you. When you return to me, I will forgive you and dwell among you again. So they have this beautiful, uh, unconditional promise that God will never leave them for good. Yeah. It's incredible. And we've seen this in Moses, and we will absolutely continue to see this throughout the Old Testament. And that is a constant... um, uh, ask or reminder of the people of God of going, Hey God, like we're struggling and yes, we made mistakes, but let us remind you, God, that you promised mm-hmm. to not leave us. And, um, and they sort of remind God of his promises, not that because God needs the reminder, like God forgot, but it's sort of the, the thing that they sort of rest on yeah. when they're sort of in these moments that, that just feel so low. They're suddenly like, you know what? It's like they woke up and go, but God, you say you're still going to be there. And so we're going to trust that. And and it's true. It proves true over and over and over. Yeah. It's a good source of, or it's a good reminder when you're lamenting, when you're grieving what, what is versus what should be. Yep. And it's that covenant. It's that promise that we can hold on to in those times. And then we get the statement that the, the Lord alone is God, um, which uh, it, I, going back to the Exodus conversation, I feel like I talked about uh, monolatry versus mon- monotheists, like the idea that um, there's a, a God that deserves worship, but that there's other gods and they have powers and stuff like that. And and it seems like from the language of, of Exodus that, that the Israelites still thought that way. Uh, but this feels like, at least in language or at least in tone or in teaching or, or communication from Yahweh, this is like the, the clear delineation. No, no, no. There, there's only one God and, and it's God alone, mm. uh, which is a, a pretty significant uh, statement. Mm-hmm. And so um, we hear about the city's refuge again. Uh, we get introduced. Uh, we get the sort of transition introduction to the law. So we're going to get a recap of what happened on Sinai, even though we just yeah. covered Sinai towards the Promised Land. Now we're going to go back to Sinai uh, and cover some of that as well. We're yeah. Hear- so this is Moses's second speech, kind of that he's given, and he's just going to hit on those general covenant conditions before he dives into the specifics yep. later on. We're going to hear about the Ten Commandments. Uh, so um, there's a few extra details, which are always interesting. There's some rest uh, for for servants and slaves this times, um, and that constant refrain of "Hey, I'm no God." who took you out of uh, out of Egypt and delivered you from Egypt. And so, uh, once again, God just repeating that for the Israelites. That's sort of a nonstop refrain. Yeah, and reminding them, you know, I didn't just make a covenant with Abram. I also made a covenant with you guys. And that's what this is. And then we get the beginning of chapter six, which um, includes in it what's called the Shema, the 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 the, the God is this one uh, statement. Uh, this this sort of feels like a summary of the lessons learned in the desert, um, and um, this is liturgically so significant for the Israelites. Uh, it will be 
till this day. Uh, they, the, the, the priests say it every day. The people mm-hmm. say it in their prayers. Uh, even even the Midrash, uh, which is like extra writings in addition to scripture, claim that changing a word of the Shema would lead to the destruction of the universe. Like there was such a significance put on this text. And so um, it's so central that Jesus is quoting it. When he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? He comes to this text and he, mm-hmm. he quotes the Shema itself. He quotes the rest of the Shema or the rest of the, the statement around love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And, and so this is, this is an essential part of who the Jewish people are and that they should keep the law in front of them all the time. And so if you go to Israel, you're going to see things like the Teflon, these little boxes on her forehead. You're going to see the Sissets, which are like little tassels that hang down, the mezuzah, which some of those things are commanded, but some of those are just places and things that are going to remind them to keep the law in front of them all the time. Um, and they're going to pass it down through generations. Like I just said, we get that repeated a lot and a lot. Yeah. But the heart of this is, Yeah. Worship God alone, and the way you worship Him is you love Him, you obey Him, you follow Him, and you teach others about it. God is so worthy of our worship. He is to be on our minds and our hearts and in our words at all times and in all places. And that's the invitation here. And then he goes on to be like, and remember, I'm going to give you all this stuff. You didn't build it. You didn't earn it. I gave it to you for free. So remember me. And, and this speaks to things like liturgical practices and repetitions. Like they're given all these festivals to remind them of all these things mm-hmm. in, in their, in their, temple practices and certainly in the synagogue practices they would have read through the Torah every year every three years they would have read through the rest of the writings and so like they had all these things to keep it in front of them now does that produce new hearts not necessarily but they were instructed to keep these things in front of them the best they can to reenact um, like even at festivals were reenactments uh, like like Passover was a reenactment of what had happened in the past and as, as Christians we still do some of these things too we take communion every week as a reenactment in a lot of ways uh, of what Jesus did with his disciples and what he signified with the bread and the blood. Um, and so we, we, we reenact as a sort of way to remember and to repeat the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he says at the end, like these are for our good always. So remember as God invites us to do these things, it's, it's, it is work. There's discipline required, but it's also an invitation to live how God designed us to live. Like we read about in Genesis one and two, this is for our good. Yeah. And it is, it doesn't have to be work. There's, yeah joy and rest involved with it yeah yeah i think sometimes we we our view of the law is so negative and and it's it, god's constant refrain is like look i'm doing this because it's for you mm-hmm. like this is good for you i created your bodies i created you how you should be and like i want you to rest i want you to remember i want you to remember what happened i want you to find joy in that i want you to celebrate i want you to remember sin and atonement and my graciousness to you all those sort of things are, are meant to to be there to remember um but but it's for it's for our good and for our flourishing that we would follow the law. Like David views it that way. It's like honey on his lips. Like he, he wants to meditate on it day and night. And, and so I think sometimes reading through some of these things, it's like, ah, oh, it feels so demanding. But it's like, no, 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 no. God, God's not trying to rob you of joy. He's trying to actually set you up the right mm-hmm. parameters so that you would experience joy in this life. Right. And you would, it's, it's what you were designed for. Yep. We all do best when we do what we were designed for. Yep. And so, New Testament, we got we got to work through uh, a lot of really important stuff in this transition point in this book. And so, uh, we pick up with uh, Paul and Barnabas have just had this conversion experience uh, on Crete uh, with this um, Sergius Paulus. As far as we could tell, this is uh, Paul's first 
Gentile convert. And, and I think it's interesting because uh, Paul would have gone to Crete, which would have been straight west. Um, and then he hightails it all the way up to this Antioch on the north side, or like right in the center of where Turkey is now. And it's totally out of the way. Uh, it wouldn't have, they wouldn't even had to go to Cyprus or to Crete if they thought that, that or Cyprus, sorry. They wouldn't even have gone to Cyprus if they thought uh, that's the direction they're going, but they do. And, and the reason why is, and we found this in architecture or in ar- archaeology, uh, this town they go to, this this Antioch, is Sergius Paulus's home. And, and so I don't know why he was on Cyprus, but um, this is his hometown. And uh, so they go there. And I, I still think, I wonder if Paul has a sight set on Rome. Like he writes in, in his letter to the Romans, like many times I have tried to visit you and it hasn't come come yet. So, um, but he heads up to this this little Antioch. Um, and these Antiochs were, there were 16 of them built all over Rome. There were ways for Rome to, um, um, portray its might and power and culture and everything that it thought was great. And so these little cities would be like these little miniature versions of Rome all over the place. So people uh, could see it. And so uh, they head to this little town um, that, that would have taken them totally off the beaten, but there's not even a road that runs through there. Like uh, who knows uh, if they even ran into anybody on the way there. And, and so they get there, um, but there's a synagogue as there is over a lot of Asia minor. Uh, this Asia minor was certainly um inhabited by plenty of Jews. It was probably about one in five people uh, were Jewish uh, in Asia Minor and so, um, or modern day Turkey. And so um, Paul gets there, there's a synagogue. And um, if you hear that there's a, there's a a, a student of Gamaliel that shows up in town, guess what? They are going to get the stage and they invite him to speak. Mm -hmm. And so um, this is cool because this is really the first time we hear Paul preach a sermon. And so you can look at like, oh, he preaches a little bit different than Peter. This is what he meant, or this was his audience. And yeah, he he certainly won some people over in Damascus and stuff like that. But this is, yeah, the first we really hear him come out and start speaking. And uh, Antioch itself, this Antioch at least, would have been um, this weird blend between kind of conservative Jews that lived sort of rurally and regionally and the city itself, which probably would have had a little more um, progressive Jews at the time. And so um, it's a little bit of both. And Paul sort of starts talking about this Gentile in the midst of this, which would have been confusing. And and there was, um, I, I mentioned this last week, but Paul addresses it in particular ways. He says, brothers, children of the family of Abraham and God fears. And all three of those are actually different categories. Uh, brothers would have been what Israelites uh, would have been referred to as. So if you were a fellow Jew, you would have been considered a brother. Children of the family of Abraham would have been converts and God fears would have been Gentile Yahweh. And, and so you had all three groups. And this is going to be part of the conversation that moves forward is what do you do with all three of these groups? And, and so um, Paul's teaching to all these. And then he comes up with all these great quotes from the Old Testament, which are awesome. He quotes Psalm 2-7. Um, and, and right after the quote that he gave, the next line is, ask me and I will give the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possessions. And then uh, in Acts 13-34, he quotes Isaiah 55-3. And the very next line is, see, I've made you him a witness uh, to the peoples, a ruler and commander to the people. Surely this, you will summon nations you know not, and nations do not know uh, you do not know will come running to you. Mm-hmm. Like there's all all these missional pieces and um, certainly you quote Psalm 16 Habakkuk 1 as well the sort of um, uh, the Habakkuk one is even a, a condemnation on his, the crowd that's listening to him saying like look um, y- you you don't know the wonder of what God is doing right now and and if and if if you miss it like these Gentiles will be judgment for you. And, and so that's sort of the, don't, don't be like the scoffers in Habakkuk, like pay attention to what God is actually doing. And Paul's just harsh. Like Paul's pretty, pretty straightforward with them and, and challenges them not to be the scoffers. 
And what's the response? Everyone's begging him to teach some more. Like they, they respond and they're excited and, 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 and they want him to keep mm-hmm. teaching him. But then the next Sabbath day, the whole city shows up. So imagine you're sort of this group of Jews that have been worshiping together for, for a long period of time. You probably know everybody in your synagogue. And now the next day, suddenly uh, your, your congregation has increased fivefold and it's all these dirty Gentile, pig-eating, crazy people who are listening to this teaching. So suddenly they're like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> like, this is a change, and I don't know if we feel comfortable with it. And like, suddenly the next day, it's like their tone suddenly changed. And and Paul comes out and just lays into them in a bit. And he says, look, like, this is what the Lord has commanded us. Like, this is what we were supposed to be doing. We were supposed to be the light to the Gentiles. And he quotes Isaiah 49 saying like, this is exactly what uh, scripture has always been pointing to. This isn't even a new movement. Like, yes, God is pouring out his spirit in a new way, but this is always what we've been called to be mm-hmm. and to be doing. Um, and, and so he gets chased out of town by the religious leaders because of all these, I think, changes. Um, and the same thing will happen multiple places as they go. So it's such an incredible, like, I think we lose the cultural context of just how big of a shift this would have been for all these Jewish worshipers to suddenly go, wait a minute, what are all these Gentiles doing here? Um, It's like when, when, when there's a shift in culture and and the people that have been very comfortable or in power or whatever it is, when things start changing, there's one or two ways you can start going with that. And, and, and for some it's, this is awesome. And for some, it's, we do not feel comfortable with this. Right. And we're seeing it kind of build up to what we'll hit in chapter 15, but we're hearing these different stories of Gentiles coming to Christ and everybody's like, I, this doesn't, this doesn't yeah. happen. In this does not line up with my theology. What do we do here? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's yeah. shifting their paradigms and they've got to figure out how to do that in a way that they can still be faithful to Yahweh according to what they believe. Yep. And so Paul and Barnabas continue on. They're preaching. A great number of Jews and Gentiles come to faith, uh, but not everybody's happy. Like I just said, some are excited. Uh, There's plenty. uh, Sometimes we feel like the Jews rejected Paul, therefore only that he went to the Gentiles. He's like, no, every city he goes to, Jews and Gentiles all become converts. Um, And and Paul and Barnabas uh, end up in the city of Lystra. Um, and so, uh, there's healing that happens and it almost feels like a parallel to Jesus's healing, which I think is intentional by Luke to go like, look, the work of Jesus is continuing through mm-hmm. these disciples. And, um, there's an interesting backstory that I think helps make sense of this whole scene. There's a story that once upon a time, uh, Zeus and Hermes visited, uh, sort of a nearby area and, um, they go home to home sort of seeking hospitality, but they're disguised in human form and no one's interested in them all except they're sort of this one poor elderly couple. And, uh, they scrape together a meal for the visitors and, and ultimately like they are blessed because they showed hospitality to Zeus and Hermes, uh, uh, and they end up not destroying uh, the rest of the town or they end up uh, destroying the rest of the town for its lack of hospitality, but not this, this, this family, this people. And so if that's the backstory, this story makes maybe more sense. Cause at first I'm like, why are they calling them Hermes and Zeus? Like what, what, there has to be something more there. And I think this story is, is there, which is why they're so fixated on it too. They're suddenly like, 
even when Paul's like, don't worship us. They're like, no, 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 you're Hermes and Zeus. And we have to show you hospitality because we don't want you to destroy our town. And, and so it's a struggle. And, and I think from this point on in, in the book of Acts, like the way that miracles worked for the Jews, where it was like miracles happen and then they would preach and then many people would come to faith. I, I think for the Gentiles, it's going to feel very different because when they perform miracles amongst the Gentiles, the interpretation of those miracles takes a weird turn. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think they're, they're going to kind of slow down or at least be less public with their miracles from the rest of the book of Acts. And and actually, we've already covered a majority of the, of, of the miracles that are going to happen in Acts, and we're only halfway through the book. And so um, it's definitely going to slow down a bit as they go to the Gentiles. But we definitely see through each story real thoughtfulness and intentionality about how they're sharing the gospel with each town and with each people. And while they have some patterns that they follow every time, it's also a little bit different depending on their audience. And that's a good encouragement for us to consider. We are going to preach the gospel differently to our Muslim neighbors than we are to our, you know, new age coworker. Everybody's going to need to hear different aspects of what the gospel or understand it in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. For these people that may not have much of a Old Testament background, it seems like, well, Paul's going to have to get creative on how he reaches uh, these towns. So, um, he ends up in Lystra uh, and... Um, yeah, and he's got some trolls. Yep. These people Tr- come from cities <laughs> over 100 miles away to persecute him. Yeah, They're he, so mad. He ends up with trolls in multiple places, and he'll have to deal with that in some of his letters to his churches to say, hey, there's these trolls that showed up after I left. Uh, you guys got to deal with them. Uh, and... Um, there's their statements about tribulation and he uses it as an encouragement saying like, look, like these struggles, these tribulations, these suffering, me, me getting stoned or me getting persecuted. Like this is part of following Jesus and be encouraged. Like my sufferings are not in vain. There's a purpose to them. And he ends up appointing elders in all of his churches. He definitely has a church planning movement going on. Yeah. And I, I mean, let's look at what he did quickly to these churches in previous cities that he'd set up. You know, I mean, they had very little understanding and knowledge, but he left them with something. So he goes back and he strengthens them, he encourages them to continue on in their faith and encourage them about the tribulations and like, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. And then appointing elders in every church to lead and guard the word and guard their interpretation and understanding of the word. And then there's also a component of prayer and fasting in committing them to the Lord. Yep. Yep. Every time. And so uh, they end up at the old Antioch, the one in Syria, and, um, and we'll include maps in, in the show notes if you want to really see where some of these towns are. Uh, but uh, they encourage their sending church, like, you can't believe all this stuff that happened. And there's these Gentiles and the gospel's going forth amongst the Greeks and, and all this stuff's happening. And mm-hmm. I think this is a total setup of chapter 15 because not only that, but now we have, uh, at least in Luke's storytelling, two witnesses. We have Peter's stories and we're going to have Paul and Barnabas' stories uh, when they come together and talk about this whole new thing that's happening. And so, yeah. Yeah. So everybody starts to be like, okay, wait a second. All these Gentiles are coming to Christ. What do we do here? Because so far up to now, they, they really still consider themselves to be Jews. And they're just like, I don't know if they would call themselves a sect or just a maybe not even a sect, but like my Judaism is fulfilled, a completed. Anyway, um, so now they're trying to decide, well, for Gentiles to become followers of Jesus Christ, do they have to convert to Judaism to do that? Right. Do they have to become Jewish? And they're starting to ask these questions and it's becoming controversial. Yeah, and yeah, I, I, I may even argue that, I don't even know if they're starting to ask those questions. I think because the, these conversations are old. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the conversation between Shammai and Hillel, the, the two rabbinic camps I've talked about before, well, they had these conversations of going, okay, like there's, there's Jews by birth, 
because of, of, of your parents, uh, which includes your father, which gets into a whole conversation about Timothy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, they're Jews by birth and they're circumcised. And yes, they are heirs of the promise. They are brothers and family. They are brothers and sisters. There are converts. Uh, so people that were born outside of that, but then go through circumcision, they follow the Torah, uh, they follow all the observances, and can be basically received as brothers and sisters uh, by marriage, per se. Uh, and then and then there's the Gentiles who go, yes, we, we love Yahweh, but um, we're not going to go through circumcision, and, and we don't feel like, um, according to the Torah, that we should. And um, and one camp, uh, the Shammai camp said, well, they can't do it. They have to be circumcised. You have to convert. And the Hillel camp was like, no, 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 you can be justified by faith because Abraham wasn't. And actually picks up on, or Hillel, uh, Paul picks up on this Hillel argument in, in Galatians where you don't have to be circumcised to, to, to be accounted as righteous, to be, to be in right standing. And so that simply comes by faith. And so these, these conversations are already happening. And now this new Christian thing is happening uh, where we, we believe in Jesus, but all these Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit. So it's like, okay, do we count them as different? Is there, are they truly part of the family? Are they outsiders? Do we side with Hillel? Do we go further? Do we side with Shammai? Do we, what, what is the interpretation here? Because um, I think they're struggling because Jesus what, didn't give like a one clear teaching of exactly what this Gentile thing was going to to, to look like. And so they convene together and they have a whole discussion about this. And, and Peter shares about his experience. Paul and Barnabas share about their experience. They quote Amos nine, which I think is brilliant because the heart of that chapter is, am I not the God of all the nations? And so um, they eventually say like, look, like all this is happening. And so James is sort of the, the ringleader of the council sort of stands up and goes, okay, like, it seems like and, and it, that's even the language they'll use. It seems like um, we should include the Gentiles into fellowship. But James being part of the church in Jerusalem, it's not surprising. It's sort of like, but we still need some laws for them. Like he, He's almost like, they still have to follow something. Like We can't just be willy-nilly about this. We know we can't hold them to the Sinai covenant. They don't have to get circumcised. There's no expectation there. But what can we hold them to? And uh, they ultimately go back to actually the Noah covenant because um, certainly in rabbinic teaching, uh, the Noah covenant carried with it three things. No idolatry, so uh, the language of you and me uh, in, in the Noah covenant. No sexual immorality, which had to do with what happened after and the uncovering of nakedness and the sanctity of life, which uh, covers what the what the um, Noah covenant or the, the, the floods actually caused, the death of life. So now uh, God's saying he's not going to do that again. And so um, I, I think because James is like, like, we can't hold him to the Sinai thing, but what can we hold him to? What falls uh, under the, or what, what do Gentiles fall under the umbrella of? And they're like, well, let's hold them to the Noahic thing. So those are three things that they cannot do. And so um, it's so interesting that, that that's the direction he went. And now um, we're going to see them write a letter and they're going to unpack, I think, what the actual theology that they end up with when we get there next yeah, week. Yeah, I think what we see happening here too is just, it's a great example of what church leadership, church government kind of looks like. Um, there's all these questions. We're wondering about the direction of the church. So the church leadership, the elders and the apostles gather together to pray and seek God and use the authority that God has given them as leaders of the church to make that decision. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, next week, and I'll talk about this next week. I mean, we're going to talk about binding and loosing and and this is binding and loosing in practice. This is binding the things that God has not given us the clearest direction on and making a decision and moving forward with that. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, but let's keep, 
keep going to Proverbs and Psalm 37. Uh, so Proverbs 20, uh, I think there's a lot of like awesome one-liners, which is kind of how Proverbs works, but uh, things that even play into teaching in the New Testament, like inheritance claimed too soon will not be blessed at the end, which is like, oh, like the prodigal son, the younger brother, like is absolutely violating the very proverb teaching uh, when he goes, Hey, can I have my inheritance now? And so um, all those sort of things or blows and wounds, they, they sort of cleanse away evil. The, the beatings purge the inmost being the sort of, Hey, suffering produces character. Suffering sanctifies us. It's not a bad thing uh, always to, to suffer or, or to be persecuted and all that, which we all already saw in Paul in, in his encouragement to the churches. And so, yeah, there's all these great one-liners in this text and statements about sin, nature of sin that we're sinful, even as children, all that kind of stuff, which is so good. Yeah, I think Proverbs, it's kind of hard to summarize in a podcast, but one of the main themes of Proverbs. And so I'd encourage you as you read it, either, you know, like pick one verse and write it down and put it in different places so you can think about it throughout the week, or just kind of ask yourself a question, what does wisdom look like according to this chapter? And see what stands out as far as what a, a life devoted to wisdom looks like. And of course, we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, the, the Proverbs writers cover such a wide swath of topics. And so like, sometimes you're like, well, I'm not, I don't get drunk a lot. So like that one line doesn't really apply to me, but this line over here certainly does. And so, yeah, focus on those mm-hmm. lines and, and have them sort of pour over you in some ways of, 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 of reminding you of, of these, these teachings. And then Psalm 37 answering sort of, or dealing with the question of why do the wicked prosper? And sometimes the, 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 the good, don't. And um, Spurgeon always calls that the great riddle of the prosperity of the wicked and the affliction of the righteous. Um, and, and David's sort of conclusion is justice will come eventually. Yeah. Um, there's not a, there's not a immediate uh, response and it's not always the most satisfying response, but it's not an untrue response either. Um, that, that God will have his vengeance in, in to, against sin and against wickedness in this life or the next. And so, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. What do we need to look out for next week? So, like I kind of said today, I think the encouragements that we read in Deuteronomy are just really rich and repetitive. Enjoy the reading. Enjoy the poetic phrases and the descriptions and the imagery. Enjoy it as you read it. Read it um, with your head and also with your heart, if that makes sense. And in the New Testament, just pay a little bit attention to the first convert in Macedonia and what was unique about that conversion. Yeah. Um, and then for me, uh, at least in the Old Testament, like look at the ways that God describes the Israelites. And, and, and in the same ways, that I think the words are for us, like God reminds them, look, it's not because you're so great that I do the things I do, but it's because I'm gracious. And, and it's not because you're awesome. It's because I'm awesome. And, um, and, and he shows graciousness over and over. And he reminds them, look, you screwed up, but I was still gracious for you and I'm still working through you. And like, we're still partners and covenanted in this thing. And so um, let those words sort of be your words too. Like as, as a listener, like you're not as awesome as you think you are. And there's plenty of ways you screw up and God is gracious over and over again. And he will still use you in your not awesomeness to do awesome things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the new Testament, Break out your maps, uh, uh, follow along on these journeys. We're going to enter the second missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. Uh, they go through all these different towns and regions, know kind of where things are, why they're getting redirected in different places, um, and and learn about maybe some of the towns and regions. Now, it's not necessary to interpret the stories, but I think it's super interesting. And I'll just give you one piece of homework. Uh, the little girl that that is following Paul and Barnabas around um, is possessed. And it, the, the language actually says by the spirit of a snake. Um, it doesn't say demonic 
demonic possession. So what is going on in that region that would make that significant? What's going on in Greek mythology? What do snakes represent for the Greeks? And so um, I, I think that's super interesting uh, of, of why it gets told that way in the Greek uh, and not others. Um, but that's it. Uh, and thanks for uh, hanging with us for this podcast this week. We'll see y'all next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye.